0: Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displays your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I see your heavens, the works of your fingers, The moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the animals of the fields. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you unite your heart together with me as I lead us in prayer? Father, you are indeed glorious. Your name is majestic. Majestic in all the earth. You are Above and beyond the heavens in your glory. This world, your creation cannot contain your majesty. It cannot reveal it in its fullness. God, I prayed that we would be challenged from your word this morning. That you would be glorified. That we would be united in this truth. And that souls would be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, after reading Psalm 8, I want us to actually begin in another passage. An associated text in Psalm 93.1. And that will be on the screen. And it is, again, in the LSB Yahweh reigns. He is clothed with majesty. Yahweh has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is established. It will not be shaken. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. In 1981, Michael W. Smith wrote a song that you're familiar with How Majestic is Your Name? Then in 1986, Jack Hayford wrote another well known song called Majesty, which became one of the most sung songs in modern church history. Both these songs are about the majesty of God. Now, while these truths certainly convey some things about the Lord and His majesty, I wonder, though, do people truly understand the meaning of God's majesty? For centuries, people have used the word majesty. Kings and queens have been referred to as your majesty, referring to their greatness, their dignity. But what is the majesty of the Lord? As we read in Psalm 93, 1 and 2, the psalmist declares that Yahweh is clothed in majesty. His majesty is expressed through his creation, his majesty is revealed in his powerful and eternal throne so that he is majestic in all that he does and all that he is. But to understand the Lord's majesty, we must understand the name of the Lord because his name is majestic. And that's exactly where David begins in Psalm 8 with the name of the Lord. And again, he writes, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displays your splendor above the heavens. Yahweh is the name of the Lord. It is his memorial name to all generations. Yahweh translated in our English Bibles as Lord, all caps, means the eternal, self-existing, self-sufficient one. At the burning bush, when God instructed Moses to return his people to his people to deliver them out of Egypt, Moses, with concern, said to God, They may say to me, What is my name? What shall I say to them? Now understand, God's name represents, again, all that he is and all that he does. In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, He answers him, Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am is the verb form of the word Yahweh. It is the to be verb. God is eternally the to be. He eternally exists in and of Himself. He always is. He is the I am. In verse 15, God continued to answer Moses. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Notice here, God uses the proper noun, Yahweh, the eternal, self existing, self sufficient one. God eternally exists and he needs absolutely nothing. Yahweh created all things by his word, he spoke all things into existence. And all things are held together by the word of his power. Therefore, we are not like him. We are created. We are dependent creatures made from the dust of the earth. So that my life, my breath, my very existence is dependent upon his power and will to sustain me. I am dependent upon the one who eternally is. Who eternally exists and needs nothing. Self sufficient. God is not like us, is he? He eternally exists. He is eternally self sufficient. He needs nothing. He's transcendent. He's above all things. So he's above and even beyond his creation. Yahweh is his name. This is the God of scripture. This is the God of Psalm 8. So notice verse 1 again. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displays your splendor above the heavens. David says literally here, oh, Yahweh, with that plea, that emotion, that heart. Oh, Yahweh, our Adonai, meaning our master, our Lord. The eternal self-existing one was the Lord, the master of David. He was the Lord of the children of Israel, and he is the Lord, the master of all his people. For Yahweh is not only the God who saves, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He is sovereign. He's above all, above all creation. Verse 1 again. You don't want to leave this verse. Oh, Yahweh, again, hear the emotion, hear the praise. Oh, Yahweh, our Adonai, our master, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displays your splendor, your glory above the heavens. Of course, God's name represents his reputation. His reputation is summed up in his name. The reputation of the eternal self-existent one is displayed in creation, both in earth and in the heavens. Did not David proclaim in Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork? But as amazing as the heavens are, as described by modern-day science, I strongly suspect, and this is just my thinking, I strongly suspect that the universe is far more amazing than we realize. I've seen so many photographs of stars, and to me, they look nothing like fiery balls. Each one is unique and colorful and amazing. They appear like lights. Set in rippling waters when you see them in photographs. Each one is glorious in its own way, each one the handiwork of our Creator. But here in Psalm 8, notice David portrays God's majestic splendor as being above or literally beyond the heavens. It's as if the whole creation is too small a theater. For the presentation of the splendor of his name, too small to display all his name Yahweh represents, too small to display his perfections, his nature, his character, his radiant glory. Creation is too limited to display his majesty, for the glory of God is infinitely above his handiwork. In verse 3, David will come back to God's creation but in verse 2, David presents one of two contrasts, contrast that displays the majesty of his name, that reveals his perfections, we would say his multifaceted, multicolored wisdom, his glorious majesty. The first contrast I actually got from MacArthur in his study notes of infants and infidels. A contrast between infants and infidels. Now notice verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. The words infants and nursing babes actually refers to infants and small children. The Hebrew for nursing babes is commonly used for young ones that are actually old enough to speak, even though it doesn't sound like it should be that way when you do a word study of that word. So Yahweh has established, or we could say ordained strength through the mouths of these little ones. And the enemies of the glory of God, the revengeful, are made to cease. What a contrast between little ones, between the weak, those who are dependent, Those who are unknowing, uneducated, and the foolish, self-sufficient, arrogant. Yes, the enemies of God and his people. Here are those who are of the kingdom of darkness, who refuse to give God the glory, who refuse to worship his majestic name. Yet God promises to use little ones, young children, to to establish strength to receive praise in the face of his adversaries. John Gill wrote concerning the words to establish strength. He wrote these words, and I quote, by which is meant the gospel, the rod of Christ's strength, and the power of God unto salvation. And I would add to that, that brings forth praise. Praise. Now, I want you to notice this morning how Scripture interprets Scripture. That's such an important concept. Notice how this prophecy is fulfilled in Matthew 21. When the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, the children cried out, Matthew 21, verse 15, Hosanna to the Son of David. The chief priests and scribes were indignant. They were angry. Why? Understand what these little children were shouting in the temple. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means we beg you to save. Save us, we pray. But beyond that, these little ones calls Jesus the son of David. But wait a minute, Jesus wasn't the son of David, Solomon was. Jesus' father was Joseph, yet God was speaking through these little ones to establish strength through the gospel resulting in praise. What's happening here? They were declaring Jesus the fulfillment of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 12 reads, when your days are fulfilled, he's speaking to David, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see, first, this is a reference to Solomon. He built a house in his name. He built the temple. He was given a kingdom, but not forever. This is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, these little ones in Matthew 21 were pleading for salvation. At the same time, they were declaring Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, the descendant of David that would rule and reign on his throne forever and ever. In response to these little ones, the chief priest and the scribe said this in verse 16. Do you hear what these children are saying? They're speaking to Christ. Do you hear what these children are saying, what they're talking about, what they're saying about you? Jesus said to them, Yes, I hear them. But have you not read? Quote Psalm 8 verse 2. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you had prepared praise for yourself. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 8 to what occurred that very day. And yes, Yahweh, the eternal self-existing one, uses infants in the face of God's enemies to establish strength and to receive praise. In Matthew 11, Jesus prayed this, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was pleasing in your sight. This is God's way. It's not man's way. God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise that he might be glorified. God's name is praised by revealing truth to infants in this case. God's perfections are put on display by revealing to the young his glorious perfections, his majestic name, his gospel strength. God's glory is manifest when the unknowing, the uneducated, the dependent praise the majesty of his name. You see, the wise and the intelligent would likely take credit for their knowledge, their understanding. But the unknowing, the uneducated infant can only give praise unto God. They can take no credit. That's God's way. The second contrast is above and of a based. I came up with that one all on my own. If you don't like it, I'm responsible. Verses 3 through 8. But let's begin in verses 3 and 4 and just work our way through this. David writes, when I see or I pay attention to your heavens, the work of your fingers... The moon and the stars which you have established. What is man that you remember him or are mindful of him? And the son of man, the son of Adam, Adam, that you care for him? David here is apparently observing the night sky, possibly when he's out keeping his father's sheep or remembering what he had seen. David knew the glory of the heavens without man-made lights. They're amazing. I've asked you this before, but have you ever found a place, take your family to a place in which there are no man-made lights and observe the heavens on a clear night. How amazing. Yes, the heavens declared the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. It manifested. It's revealed through his creation. The heavenly bodies are glorious creations. They are worthy of our consideration and contemplation because they point us to the Creator, the God who made them. They are His handiwork. They reveal His majesty, His glory. God has established them. He has set them into place so that we can determine the signs and the seasons, the days and the years. Now in light of the glory of the heavens, notice verse 4, we read it already, but with that contrast, notice verse 4, what is man that you remember him, the son of Adam that you care for him? In light of the heavens that declare the glory of God, David asks, what is man that you're mindful of him? Why would you give attention to man made from the dust of the earth? Why do you care about the sons of Adam who sinned against you? Why are you concerned about man who does not possess the glory of the heavens? David is making a contrast between that which is above and glorious and that which is a base that lacks the glory of the heavens. Yet God has made man the object of his regard and the recipient of his favor. Look at verses 5 and 6. Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and majesty. You have made him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. In verse 5, a little lower than the angels refers to being lower in nature, lower in glory. Yet God has not crowned the angels. He has crowned man with glory and honor. Glory and honor are the attributes of royal dignity. Jameson Fawcett Brown Commentary writes, The position assigned man is that described, Genesis 1, verses 26-28, that described as belonging to Adam in his original condition. In a modified sense, in his present fallen state, man is still invested with some remains of this original Dominion. Verse 6, you made him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. God has given man dominion over his physical creation. We are God's representatives. He's sovereign and he uses us to rule and reign the physical creation. Then we see in verses 7 and 8 that David refers back to that which God has given us dominion over. He's referring back now to Genesis one 6, 26 through 26-28, when he writes, All sheep and oxen, and also the animals of the field, the birds of, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. <clears throat> Again, God has given us dominion over his handiwork. We are representatives to care for his creation. And even in our fallen state, in a limited sense, we still have dominion. But now I want us to stop for a moment and switch gears. While this passage certainly refers to man who was made a little lower than the angels. Its primary fulfillment is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Remember that double fulfillment or partial fulfillment and then a full fulfillment? We see it over and over and over. If you want to understand the scriptures, you must understand that concept when it comes to prophecy. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. He is the ultimate fulfillment. He is the son of man the Son of Man. He was made a little lower than the angels for a little time in his incarnation, that all things might be put under his feet, that he might have perfect dominion over all creation. This is an interpretation not that I invented. I didn't get this out of thin air. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 quotes This psalm, verses 4 through 6, to demonstrate that Christ is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He writes in verse 8, For in subjecting all things to him, he's talking about Christ, as you'll see in a moment. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not see all things subjected to him. You see, he died and is risen and is exalted above all. He sits at the right hand of God, the throne of God. But we do not see this, certainly in its fullness. We believe it, but it's not apparent in this world. But one day we will see it. It will become perfectly clear. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 25. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Yes, he now reigns. All things are subject to him. But he is putting his enemies under his feet. He is conquering. He reigns from heaven right now. But one day, as we said last week, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day we will see all things in subjection to Christ. His kingdom will become real. It become apparent to us. We will see it with our eyes. Hebrews 8, 2, 8 says it's already true. But we don't see it manifested yet. What do we see? What do we see? The writer of Hebrews tells us in verse 9, but we do see him, Jesus, who was made a little lower, made for a little while, excuse me, lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by grace, the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. PANTOS, literally all. Understand the eternal self-existent one is above and beyond creation. Yet he, this transcendent one, this God who is eternally self-existent, self-sufficient, descended in the person of Christ. He entered into a fallen world. He took on human flesh, yet without sin, and he suffered death. And by the grace of God, he tasted death for all. That doesn't sound like deism to me. You know, some of the founders of our country were deists. They believe that God created, he set in motion, and he just left it to itself. That's not the God of the scriptures, is it? God in the person of Christ. Yahweh in the person of Christ. Matthew 3, referring back to Isaiah chapter 40, Jesus is Yahweh in human flesh. It's exactly what it says. He's the one that John the Baptist would come to prepare the way for. You see, God is mindful of man. Jesus Christ became a man without sin. He took on human flesh, this transcendent God, descended in the person of Christ and became man, the God-man, truly God and truly man. And by the grace of God, he tasted death for all. In the context of the book of Hebrews, all refers to all who believe or all who persevere, all who are the elect. And I think that is evident from Hebrew, other passages as well, but Hebrews eleven thirty nine. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. That's who the elect are. The psalmist ends with where we began, back in verse 1, especially the first two phrases. He ends with praise and worship unto God. The very same words in verse 9. O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, again, God's name represents all that he is. He is Yahweh, the eternal, self-existing, self-sufficient one. He is transcendent. He is above and beyond all creation, even and especially the glory of the heavens. He eternally exists. We continually change. We're so different. We continually change. We grow old. We age. We have to get glasses. We die. We are not beings, I like to say. We are becomings. But folks, God is. He eternally is. He is the I am. He is immutable. He never changes. He eternally exists. And he needs absolutely nothing. This is the God of Scripture. The name of the Lord also represents the works of his fingers. All that he has done. He has created all things, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He spoke, and it was. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He has established all things. They're immovable. The heavens declare the glory of God. They are the works of his hand. We see his majesty, his glory in these two contrasts. God using the unlearned little ones, to cease his enemies, to proclaim his glorious salvation. We see his glory in another contrast. We see his majesty in the contrast between God caring for lowly man when the heavens are far more glorious, making us a little lower than the angels. Yet God is mindful of us. He has crowned us with royal dignity, placing creation under our feet. But above all that, all that this psalm proclaims, we especially see the majesty of God, the glory of God, the wisdom of God, and the incarnation of the Son of God, that God took on human flesh and dwelled among us. The eternal self-existing one, the one that's transcendent above all things in the person of Christ was made lower than the angels for a little while. He came into this world and took on flesh, a body made from dirt. He got tired, he thirsted, he hungered, he was tempted, yet without sin, but he became man. And he further humbled himself, becoming obedient to death on a cross. That's crucifixion, probably the worst Type of execution known to man, the very God of heaven. The transcendent one was crucified for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. He rose from the dead. But not just that, he rose victorious. And just as he rose, we are risen in Christ to walk in newness of life. But he also ascended back to heaven. He led captivity captive. He took those that he purchased with his own blood, and he has brought us so that now we are seated with him in the heavenlies, where he rules and he reigns, where he sitted seated at the right hand of his father. That's amazing. And one day we will be with him forever and ever. So we're left this morning with a call to faith. A call to believe the good news, the strength of God, the rod of salvation. You see, not only were we created lower than the angels, We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is not one single person born into this world, apart from Christ, that is not in desperate need of salvation. If you've never been born again, not one person is born righteous in his sight. We're born with a sin nature, we're born in rebellion. Against God, following the evil one, following the course of this world. We're all born physically into a world of sin and death. And we're willing participants. We are willing participants going the way of the world. Some commit more abominable things than others, but we're all participants. We're all on the same path apart from salvation. Therefore, we must be born from above. We must have a heavenly birth, a spiritual birth, a birth of life and peace. So I ask you this morning, if you've never been born again, And you understand your condition. If you understand God and his glory and your spiritual condition apart from him, then you carry the weight of sin and death and condemnation. It's like carrying a pack on your back through life that's too heavy to carry. Jesus said, Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Rest from sin, rest from guilt, rest from shame, rest from hopeless condition, rest from condemnation. Jesus continued, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. God spoke through Isaiah, the very verse, through which Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, came to faith in Jesus Christ. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. While God is sovereign in salvation, because that's what the Word of God teaches, there's no question that we're responsible to believe. Listen to another psalm. The psalmist writes in chapter 7, not on your screen. Therefore, the Lord heard and was full of wrath, and a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also mounted against Israel. Why? The next verse tells us, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his salvation. I've met people that Would not come to Christ. Well, I can't figure out if I'm the elect. Folks, God has called us to believe and to repent. Oh, that we would repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ, the saving Messiah. May we fall on our faces this morning as unbelievers. Any unbelievers and worship him and trust him. If you're saved, fall on your face this morning in your hearts. Maybe when you get home and worship his majesty, this is the God of creation that entered creation, entered a fallen world in the person of Christ. That's what we're going to celebrate over the next several. That's what we should celebrate year-round, that Christ took on human flesh and dwelled among us, that he went to the cross, that he rose from the grave, and he ascended and took us as his captives, And gave gifts to men. Folks, that's the gospel. Will you repent? Stop going your own way. And will you look to Christ? There is no other. What did Isaiah say? I lost it. There it is. Turn to me. And be ye saved all the ends of the earth. It's a genuine call to you and to me. If you're not born again, look to him. If you are, worship his majesty. Worship Yahweh, our Adonai, our master. We are willing servants, willing slaves of him. For he is the best slave master that anyone could ever know. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for your word. Lord, every time I pick up a new passage that I have not preached from, and I dig into it, I cannot help but be amazed at how you are revealed through it. How you are glorified through your word. How your word from beginning to end proclaims Christ and all his glory. This saving one. This Jesus. Meaning the Lord saves. God may we look to him today as believers. May we trust him. May we walk in him. May we walk as Christ walked. In this weary world. God, use us this Christmas season that we might give praise to your name, that we might worship your holy name, God, your majestic name, and others might see God at work in us, not see us, but God, that others might see your work in us, that they might look to you and be saved. May you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.